The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute and by the support of listeners like you. Thank you for all you do. Your contribution allows us to produce The Glenn Show week after week, along with all of the other great content at glennlowry.substack.com. Your contribution also helps to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Once again, thank you. Hello there, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry, and you have tuned into The Glenn Show. Uh, I'm with John McWhorter, my conversation partner, longtime conversation partner. He teaches at Columbia University, and he writes for The New York Times. I'm on the faculty at Brown University, and I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show. We are here exactly three weeks after uh, the assault on Southern Israel civilians and military uh, carried out by Hamas, the October 7th attack. Um, And the fallout continues to reverberate far and wide. John, your voice has been uh, notable in the public commentary about how it is that various factions within the American cultural political matrix have been responding, particularly the uh, anti-colonial left and so on. And um, I wonder if you wouldn't, you know, share with us some of what you've been writing and thinking about. Well, I have a piece in um, the Free Press this week where I make the basic point that people who are calling themselves anti-colonialists, and we can talk about the appropriateness of that word, are cheering Hamas on, thinking that to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs, roughly, even though we're talking about 1,400 people brutally murdered. Break some eggs. The idea being that this is their only recourse to battle this imperialism. And the thing is, it's not their only recourse. There's a such thing as taking a deep breath and doing things that are less dramatic and take longer time, but respect human lives more. But instead, what we've been treated to is this vision of hyper-educated people, including PhDs and professors, not to mention students, sitting and pumping their fists in the air at the idea of Hamas butchering these 1,400 people on a moment's notice, killing people whose membership in society is being treated as if it makes them villains, this idea of collective responsibility. Frankly, it's rather primitive. We're watching. Uh, Excuse me, you're referring here to the collective responsibility of Jewish people in Israel for the. Yes. um, You're a 17 year old dancing at a rave. You are an imperialist because you are Israeli. And so people are pumping their fists watching this. And frankly, I consider that to be racism. And I don't mean it in a rhetorical way. It's what I feel very spontaneously when I watch this. First thing I think is you obviously think that Hamas and by extension, the people they represent, are lower beings, that this is the best that they can do. Butchering people like this is something that you excuse them for. Now, folks, I completely understand that the the grandmother cowering in Gaza was not wishing for this. But the idea seems to be that if you are Palestinian, and by extension, Arab, then it is understandable if you happen to take the path of flying over a wall and butchering 14, going through a tunnel and butchering 1,400 people. Because what you're doing is being anti-imperial and anti-colonial and, well, France Fanon is fun to read, et cetera. But it's extremely condescending when you would never dream of even representing people doing it in your own name. Nobody would imagine a white person from somewhere in Connecticut pumping their fist as somebody who claimed to represent them went over a fence and butchered 1,400 people. Unthinkable. It's thought of, frankly, as a non-white thing, because we're supposed to think of the Palestinians as the black people, so to speak. I'm revolted at this. Now, Glenn, I'm very close to done. I understand that there are sins on both sides. I understand what people are going to say about Israelis, and we can have a conversation about why the Israelis feel that this is their homeland. I get it. I'm not unaware of all that. But nothing excuses what Hamas did three weeks ago. And the idea that they're freedom fighters is utterly nauseating. And anybody who thinks that should be ashamed unless they're ready to defend themselves very carefully. I agree that nothing excuses the horrific uh, butchery 
that we were witness to. Nothing excuses it. Can anything explain it? Is there a distinction worth making here between trying to come to terms with this atrocity in its historical context, there I use that word on the one hand, and promulgating a, a moral assessment uh, of the act. It was or was not a good or a bad evil or not so evil, uh, despicable or inevitable. Um, do you see my question? I do. And of course, explanations make sense. Sure. There are explanations for these things. But something like this by any society that considers itself to have any kind of moral, moral sophistication, it can't be excused. And it certainly shouldn't be greeted with smiles. There's just, there's, there's no excuse for it. And you interpret these smiles, uh, if I understand you, as a kind of diminution of the uh, regard for the humanity of the perpetrators of these atrocities. I do. Were we to think them are equal, we would hold them to the same standard that we might apply to ourselves or our other friends, quote unquote. We would. And I was sitting here thinking, what about anti-Semitism? Aren't there more direct and simple? This is an Occam's razor kind of thing. You know, I mean, I don't need a convoluted bank shot to understand this. I just need Jew hatred to understand this. And those uh, elements of American political culture who are, um, you know, able to look askance or even to applaud uh, the the atrocities are, in effect, giving uh, evidence of their own anti-Semitism. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, Glenn. And, you know, we're going to catch more hell for this than anything we've ever said about George Floyd. But I'm going to give my honest opinion. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks. I don't see it as anti-Semitism. I think that it's an anti-white imperialist thing. People are using, frankly, a rather easy mental schema. The white people on top, the black people on the bottom. It's not about whether someone's Jewish. It's about whether someone is, maybe you might say, a Zionist. It's about Israel. It's not that somebody has something against a Jewish person who happens to live in some other country. It's not about not liking a Jewish person who lives in Connecticut, except maybe to the extent that you think of them as you know fans of Zionism. But it's not about a Jewish person who's living somewhere in Afghanistan or a Jewish person who's living somewhere in the eastern part of Russia. Nobody has any problem with Judaism in that sense, I don't think. It's about what certain Jews are doing in a certain country. Folks, Yes, I know that there has been virulent anti-Semitism in the past, and I know that it exists now in its pure form. But I don't think that the student, the professor, the you know, activist who today is looking at what Hamas did and pumping their fists in the air is doing it because they hate Jewish people. They hate Israeli Zionists because they're doing a thing that they consider imperialist and colonialist. I don't I don't see it as the same thing. Of course, one answer is, well, anti-Semitism might be part of it. And I'd say, well, sure, but a small part. I find that rather simplistic here. This is about the hard left's feelings about colonialism. It's not about the Jew in history. That's my opinion. Well, I was almost going to say I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm not Jewish. I could see taking the position that to reduce my people, if I were Jewish, to white in your schema, not your personally, but the nation's schema of racial dichotomy is already a kind of erasure and uh, kind of anti-Semitism. We're not white. We're not white. We are the Jewish people. Uh, And likewise, I could see someone saying, in a way, it trivializes and reduces to a two-dimensional frame the Hamas uh, movement uh, to liken them to blacks in this intersectional, woke, anti-racist schema, when in fact they are the product of a very particular and concrete historical line of development. And, you know, race their non-whiteness 
seems to have very little to do with that. But you're not talking about them. You're talking about the people in the universities who back the uh, boycott, divest, and sanction movement, who are taking down the posters of the missing Israeli children in, uh, have been carried into Gaza by Hamas. And you're saying they uh, have this very flat, and I, I think that's what you're saying. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I invite your rebuttal. They are the ones who have this reductive view, and they are the ones who are seeing Jews as white people in this uh, drama and who are seeing the Palestinians as the brown non-European people. Uh, And so that gives an account for their behavior. Yeah, and I can also understand somebody who would say, well, to see someone ripping down those posters, for me as a Jewish person, a person might feel that is injurious because the Zionist cause is part of my history, part of my culture, and so I feel this as anti-me. And therefore, we're saying that the person who's ripping down the posters is anti-Semitic. I would still say that I completely understand that person's feeling watching the posters come down. I actually have seen the before and after of that at Columbia. I'm not claiming to have seen anybody ripping the posters down, but I remember one day seeing them, and then the next day noticing that all of a sudden they were gone and long before the day that things would be taken off of the walls just by custodians, etc. So yeah, I get how that would feel, but the person who ripped the posters down does not necessarily feel, I hate Jews. They hate what the Jews in Israel have been doing. That's a subset of of what Jewishness is, at least by my reading, although maybe a Jewish person would say that, no, that's that's a needless distinction, that all of it is a whole, especially in, in terms of how a person would feel watching those posters come down. But to me, the main lens here, and not just because I'm black, but the main lens is the radical left's in academia's long tradition of of thinking of the world as divided between the subalterns and the others, and roughly the subalterns are the brown people. You don't have to say black. And then the white people who like Vikings forever are stomping all over the place and subjugating people. It's To see the patterns here, I think one has to understand that this is a variation on that, rather much more than a continuation of the way Adolf Hitler felt. That's the way I, that's the way I feel. And I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, thinking about Columbus Day. So we don't do Columbus Day anymore. We do Indigenous Peoples Day in a lot of places because we know that uh, the advent of the West domination of the rest of the world led to horrific, genocidal, et cetera, for Native populations. And so we don't do Columbus Day anymore. Taking down statues. Uh, the hatred of capitalism, characteristic of much of the same spectrum that you're talking about, uh, and a contempt for any talk about Western civilization, uh, about Enlightenment values, uh, uh, a you know, because that's meant to be that's seen as. Um, you know, papering over the crimes, you know, the, the we stole the land from the native people, we enslaved the Africans and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking, gosh, that is such a, um, a well-defined, coherent, uh, at, at least it, it, it sort of hangs together view of the world that um, I, I, I'm not sure that your, your uh, characterization really captures the whole of it. Um, what do you think about that? I get it. We, we got something more problematic here than just the things that you and I have been talking about so long about uh, woke anti-racism kind of thing. We got, we've got uh, a, a real intellectual problem that runs very deep here. The suspicion of the Enlightenment, the suspicion of capitalism, and the tacit idea that the past is never past, all of those things, as we've discussed, to me are suspiciously easier than the alternatives. The Enlightenment is a challenge. Understanding the point of capitalism is a challenge. You have to learn it in late high school or college. And to live in the present, to acknowledge the past and its role and why the present is the present while not living in the past, like some tribe, is a 
a challenge. And so the frame of mind that you're talking about must be acknowledged, but acknowledge cannot be a euphemism for take over all discussion and be considered, in essence, the truth. Because those ways of thinking are less advanced than their alternative. And there is no exception to that just because subalternism is happening. Oppression does not cancel out that very basic common sense and that very basic A to B logic. We shall be enlightened. We shall be capitalist, although taming it, probably. And we are not going to pretend that what happened in 1492 happened last week or that atoning for what happened in 1492 is, well... We must atone for what happened in 1492 with a vision towards continuing with 2023. And that means that we cannot look at the United States as a failure, as a hit job, as a tragedy, even if it began with that. Because the thing is, that was a very long time ago. We're now here, and there is as much good to be said about where we are now as bad, at least (laughs) on a good day. We can't live in the past. And that's the same thing as us and the extent to which reparations is relevant. The extent to which it's relevant that America is, quote unquote, stamped from the beginning with racism. The question is, okay, yes, that's true. What do we do now? And people will differ on what you do now. Whereas too often it's treated as a done deal that we just dwell on what happened in the beginning and think of it as basically invalidating the entire project that we're engaged in now. That won't do. It won't get anybody anywhere, subaltern or not. You know, there's going to be an extensive ground campaign undertaken by Israeli military into the Gaza Strip to root out Hamas. It's going to be horrifically bloody. A lot of people are going to die. (sighs) How does that, and the anticipation of that uh, necessary, is it necessary? Defensive. Is it defensive? Um, mobilization uh, by Israel against Hamas, which is deeply embedded, (laughs) dug in underground within the uh, Gaza territory. How does that affect your thinking about this? I mean, because we're not anywhere near the end of this. Uh, We're we're not even at the end of the beginning of this. Uh, I I shudder to think that... um, the um, bitterness and the vitriol and, and the hatred and the uh, animosity, enmity uh, that we've seen over the last couple of weeks uh, will be sustained and amplified and entrenched as we go forward. Um, I don't know. Do, do you share my foreboding here? I'm, I'm, I'm really it's a dark, dark time that we're that we're entering into here. It's horrible. It can only be less bad, and that's the best that it can be, and it can only be so much less bad. I mean, I even last time we talked, I was saying that I worry about the idea of going in and flattening Gaza. What would that do, especially since it would only bide time? I would say at this point that it seems to me that the idea, and listen to me, a non-expert on this situation, but it seems to me that as many People who live in Gaza should be gotten south and beyond as possible. But the tragedy is that Hamas is not going to stop that. There is nothing we can do to make them stop that. They are not the PLO. They don't want to sit at a table and negotiate. They want Israel to go away, and they're not going to stop wanting Israel to go away. And so to not try to exterminate them, I think it's become clear this time in particular, is to essentially settle for things maybe being calm for five years or 10 years, and then they're going to do it again. Glenn, I'm not sure I can say that, you know, I'm someone who Quakerism played a major role in my childhood, and even if it hadn't, I think I'd feel this way. War is hell. 
I would like to be a pacifist. Sometimes that just doesn't work because Hamas won't stop. And if they don't go in there and uproot Hamas, not Palestinians, but Hamas, then this is going to keep going. And so if it's possible to go in and seal off the tunnels and really make it so that there is no more Hamas, despite the fact that thousands of Palestinians and thousands of Israelis would die in the effort, I can't see any other way. And this is the test that I gave myself 20 years ago with Iraq. To say that I think we should do this, and I was mistaken about Iraq, Colin Powell and the media fooled me. I, I, I thought we were going in there for a reason. I should have known better. But I remember thinking, if I'm going to espouse this, would I go? Would I go and get my legs blown off? And at the time, I said, yes. If this were, this were my effort, I would go in there because I really do worry about X, Y, and Z. And in this case, if I were Israeli, yeah. I mean, I think I'm maybe getting too old for it really to matter, but let's say I'm saying this at 35. Yeah, because otherwise Hamas isn't going to stop. And you can talk about why they're not going to stop, et cetera, but the fact is they're not. What else could be done other than going in and smoking them out? What do you, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, I said I have a sense of foreboding, and, and I, I feel that I'm uh, looking over the precipice into a chasm that goes down very deep. And I, I think the word tragedy, historical tragedy, is apt. I, I'm no military expert, but I have been following a few of them as they comment on the uh, tactical uh, problem of actually rooting out Hamas in the Gaza territory. It's not even clear that it can be done. I mean, you can kill a lot of people, you can destroy a lot of infrastructure, but, you know, uh, do you end up with a even more fiercely mobilized uh, hatred of your uh, presence and, and a determination to resist and to fight, you're gonna, what are you going to do? You're going to kill them all? You're not going to kill them all. <sighs> so there's that. Uh, again, I'm not an expert. People tell me that the risk of a wider regional war being precipitated by the slaughter that would ensue if a serious operation on the ground to root out Hamas were undertaken the slaughter, not of thousands, probably of tens of thousands, maybe of hundreds of thousands, um, that uh, one is playing with fire here. One doesn't know where, you know, second front in the north, Iran gets drawn in, Turkey, et cetera. Um, this is how World War I started. Again, I'm not an expert. I'll say it for the last time. Uh, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'll acknowledge that. Uh, it's not something that I have mastery over, and I'm used to feeling mastery in the subjects that I discuss. But here we are. Uh, so there's bloodlust. Uh, maybe you've seen some of the comments, you know, about the revenge that needs to be wrought. Right. On those Palestinians, not just the fighters at Hamas, but you know, um, so uh, I'm depressed here uh, yeah, that, about this. That revenge is more laziness. That's the easy way out. You know, you resist that if you're trying to think on a higher level. And in everything that you're saying, yes, we're going beyond what we have any expertise in in terms of what the wider ramifications might be. My impression is that Hezbollah would be a little easier as an enemy than Gaza. But. I can't get away from if you don't go into Gaza now, and I don't know if anybody would have said this 10 years ago, but if you don't go in this time, they're going to do it again. And my reading has suggested that um, the idea is to eliminate most of the leadership and to, to eliminate the tunnels, the tunnels blocked off, filled in, so that Warfare has to be in the outside, and that will be pure hell. Get as many of the civilians out as possible, but the tunnels make things especially hard. If that could be done relatively quickly, say six months, maybe that, even with the risk of larger repercussions, would be better than taking the higher road and leaving Gaza kind of under some sort of supervision, but it's the same old thing. With a new generation growing up with absolutely nothing to do, you know, they barely have jobs. They're penned into that area, for better or for worse. 
where what they live for, their whole sense of identity, is based on hating Israel. And then this will happen again. It'll be very easy to find men who are willing to die to kill more Israelis. I have the hardest time seeing that as what is the, the good thing to do now. But anybody getting blown up, horrible thing. That person has a family. That person valued their life as much as we do. And for it to happen in the thousands. But I, I'm not sure I see anything else. You're going to kill a lot of civilians. You're going to lose a lot of your own people. It's a door-to-door, block-to-block, basement-to-basement, tunnel-to-tunnel. Tactically, uh, it's a nightmare, I'm told. Again, I, I don't really have... It's not like just doing here. it from the air. Yeah. And is it... And politically, I imagine uh, the Israeli political establishment, the, the Netanyahu government, and so on, the IDF, have to come with a heavy hand yeah, just maintain their own their own legitimacy yeah. in the face of this horrific. Uh, this is the last government you would want to have behind this. Yes, exactly. And yet, I'm sitting over here entertaining the idea of this kind of world historic uh, gesture of recognizing, looking three moves down the line, recognizing that there, at the end of the day, is no military solution to this problem. There is only a political solution. That's the only thing that's going to stick somehow. Uh, the land between the river and the sea has to be divided somehow uh, between Israeli and Palestinian. Uh, I have no idea how that's going to be accomplished, but my gut is telling me that you say it'll happen again, it'll happen again anyway, without the political solution. So this world historic gesture would be to forbear. Uh, of course, there has to be some response, but we would be not to have it at the scale that roots out every tunnel and uh, ferrets out every fighter and, and quote, eliminates them. Um, to, uh, you know, and... I don't know. I'm going to stop. The longer I talk, the more trouble I'm going to get myself into because I'm speculating off the top of my head. And I want to ask you uh, to think with me about what our, that is the United States, uh, role in this, uh, in, in this unfolding historical catastrophe should be. Are, are we by, in effect, saying uh, we've got Israel's back no matter what, and by tamping down uh, the criticism of potential overreaction by Israel to this atrocity and, and by uh, giving cover, diplomatic cover, we vetoed a resolution in the UN Security Council to call for a ceasefire in the area because, well, Israel has yet to implement the uh, rooting out and elimination of the Hamas. Um, are we wise in doing so? Are, or might we not try to bring to bear some of the hard-won lessons that we've learned from our own reaction to victimization, 9-11, and so on? Or from the historical record, uh, you and I read an article by Adam Schatz in the London Review of Books about that likened uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and some of its aspects to the French-Algerian uh, War of Independence in Algeria that stretched over more than a decade. And that was very, very, very bloody and so on. Uh, anyway, I ramble. Uh, what I'm trying to say is uh, we've been asked to choose sides, in effect. We're siding with Israel. And the question is whether having done so, simply enabling whatever might come out of the political slash military process in Israel to go forward without uh, offering uh, criticism or counsel is, is a wise course for us to pursue. You know what? If I were, if I were running the United States, if I, if, it, if this were up to me, my assistance with, what would seem to have to happen 
with Hamas. And I mean, did you read that they have tunnels that come up out of the sea that they can? They, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, they, they can come in by, by sea at this point. Israel just got rid of one of those. They're not going to stop. If we're going to help with that, I would say only will we help if not a single settlement building is erected ever again, ever, basically. In the West Bank, the settlements have to stop. The idea that that's somehow defensible, whatever the defense is, I have never heard one that convinced me, although I've often been polite within the the boundaries of social conversation. And a major effort would have to go into stopping renegade settlers, as they're called, from terrorizing Palestinians who are already there. That's got to stop. We have blood, both literal and moral, on our hands. If we assist in the effort in Gaza while what's going on in the West Bank is blatantly unfair and often savage behavior coming from Israelis themselves. Not all of Israel, but these settlers, as they're called, they make life miserable often for Palestinians, not directly sanctioned by the government, but that has to stop. And no more settlement building. I don't see the justification of that. I would hold our participation hostage to a serious promise about that. Because that's a whole other story that we're not dwelling on now because that's not where the major tensions are. But that's where I think Israel, Israel's government and the Israelis who are involved in that settling have gone wrong. Um, and I'll stand by that. So that's what I would do. It's one thing for Biden to do all of this hugging and all of this support. But for me, it's all about what about the settlements, President Biden? How do you feel about that? And if how you feel about that is just that they are, quote unquote, troubling, no, no, it's more than troubling. I don't think they're in favor of the settlements. Um, I can't cite chapter and verse of what the official policy position is, but I think the U.S. position for some time has been uh, critical about uh, the settlement critical, ideology right. and the empowerment of settlers by the right wing uh, governments in um, Israel over the decades. Uh, what do you make of the call for punishment and sanction of people who are, as I say, we have to take sides, siding with Hamas? The, the, uh, not just condemnation of those views, but the effort to exact uh, some kind of retribution against people uh, who are taking that position, withholding our money, not hiring these people, ruining them, uh, because after all, look at their values. Their values are decided with uh, terrorists. And, and what do you make of uh, President Biden's uh, Oval Office speech in which he um, likened the struggle against Hamas that Israel must now uh, and has been for some time engaged in uh, with the war in Ukraine? Uh, tyranny, we have a tyrant in Putin imposing his will on Ukraine. Terrorists. We have the uh, barbaric slaughter of innocents by the terrorist organization. It's almost when I heard the speech, I thought, what is this foreign policy by alliteration? I've got tyranny. I've got terrorists. These are, are these really the same fight? He says they're the same fight. And he asked for $100 billion from Congress to shore up uh, civilization against tyranny in Ukraine and against terrorist in Israel, and I sigh. Yeah. Because, yeah. You have to put yourself where people are. I say this too much, but you have to try to put yourself in someone's head. I understand why Mr. Hamas guy would do this. I see how he's thinking. And I think that he should be reviled. However, I completely understand how a human being living for hating Israel, not having much else to live for, might be driven to do things like this. And to me, that's different, as revolting as it is, especially when we're talking about the leadership of these people. This needs to be condemned as nauseating, not just as troubling, as intolerable, as maybe worth 
leveling Gaza. But that's not the same as Putin, who is a, you know, a vicious megalomaniacal tyrant who is willing to take out just as many lives, in his case, on the basis of a certain primitive sense of what Russia is supposed to be and surrounding countries. So no, it's, it's not the same thing. That's not my favorite kind of thinking. But in the same way, someone here who looks at what Hamas is doing and thinks of it as a wonderful thing, I sharply disagree with them, but I think that they're falling for this, everything is a repeat of the civil rights movement of the 1960s in America mindset. That's not hard to fall into, and there's so many things to pay attention to. And that kind of thinking is so caught up with what especially white people today think of as what makes them moral beings. I get why somebody might feel that way, and it's my job to, say, put a drop in the ocean and write my piece questioning this. but. Nobody should lose their job for that. Nobody should not be hired by a law firm for that. I get it. People should just have arguments, and they should be heated ones. But the idea that you put people in the stocks, this is the same thing as 2020 and 2021 here when somebody said the wrong thing about blackness and got fired. It's the same Lord of the Flies phenomenon masquerading as advanced thinking. It's people basically being mean, giving vent to that aspect of humanity. But if it's in the name of anti-racism, then it's the right thing to do. It's just, it's, it swarms. So that's how I feel about that. I'm very disappointed with this, this issue of censure. I'm disappointed to see university presidents unable to fully condemn Hamas because you have somebody sitting in a big, beautiful office with a PhD who, when the camera and the mic isn't on, is probably pumping their fists in the air at what Hamas did. That's, that's disgusting. But they shouldn't lose their job. Opinions differ, and they should be allowed to differ even when issues of power are concerned. Differentials in power do not cancel out humanity, civility, and higher thought. So no, I, I disagree with this This version of cancel culture as much as I have the one from 2020 and 2021. Not that it's completely gone. They're related, it seems to me, to cancel culture binge where people were fired or, uh, you know, defenestrated for uh, saying white lives matter or whatever, are related to the upsurge of censorship uh, and uh, attacks on people for having uh, unpopular political opinions uh, in support of Hamas that we're seeing proliferate. Now, it seems to me that they're related. It seems to me that the fact of the former fuels the, animates the energy behind the latter. That is, when the streets were uh, uh, over, overrun with uh, rioting anti-racists, who were burning stuff down, attacking police officers and destroying property, and in some instances, killing people. <clears throat> you people sided with the, with the blacks. You sided with the anti-racists. You sided with the people protesting about George Floyd, and you, and you issued statements. My university president certainly issued one. Many of them did. Uh, Therefore, apparently, you have no reticence whatsoever to take your institution and to put its brand and uh, identity on the scale on one side or another of a disputable conflict and say your institution's values are this. You take a side. Now comes the uh, slaughter of 1,400 Jews in southern Israel, and uh, you equivocate. And you're on the one side, on the other side. Uh, so you can't possibly say universities don't have political positions when I can see from 2020 that you do have a political position on some issues. Hence, you expose yourself to uh, being held accountable for whatever it is that you say about this right now. Yeah. It isn't, it isn't right. And I can't help thinking that you know, this is, we're talking about a university and what the university supposedly stands for. And this is 2.0 in terms of what is considered to be advances in human culture. 
And let's face it, we're talking about, in the attackers, we're talking about a culture where women are relegated to roles that these people pumping their fists in the air would consider quite inappropriate if in Massachusetts or Colorado. We're talking about people for whom toleration of homosexuality and transness is absolutely off the table. It's particularly interesting seeing gay people pumping their fists in the air about this because, you know, they would be in danger themselves just walking through the streets of Gaza. That's not relevant, John. Excuse me for interrupting. I agree with the assessment. You don't want to be gay, openly gay on the streets of Tehran or uh, in front of the Hamas because they're uh, anti-gay. But how's yeah. that, how, how's that relevant to the way in which American progressives might, who might be gay, might react to what they take to be the moral um, offense of uh, Zionism and, and the occupi- occupation of Palestine? I find it interesting that it's never even discussed how you rank those things. So apparently the colonialism is worse than the various isms that that society internally has always been based on. I wouldn't say that anybody would want to go invade a homophobic society. You could argue that, frankly, that's most of the world. You don't invade for that. But you are championing a people who would despise you. I just find a certain irony in that. There's no question that these people would despise you or subjugate you if you're you're a woman. You don't find that a little... Weird that the idea of the well, white I'd versus come, the black. Is, I'd come is, at it. I'd come at it a little bit differently. I'd say, of the person who relies upon liberal values in order to be able to have a way of life that might rub some people the wrong way. I'm talking about a gay person, for example. It might rub some people the wrong way, and yet, in the fullness of time, we've come in the West uh, to see that the principles of individual liberty uh, over, over, uh, override whatever, you know, uh, traditional values type reticence that a person might have to embrace a, a homosexual way of life. That's a part of a larger set of ideas uh, of this Enlightenment-inspired development of a liberal political order. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And Israel is, warts and all, an embodiment of that. And so you're siding with those and, you know, I'm prepared to allow that Hamas comes into existence within a historical context uh, over which uh, the uh, fact of the establishment of the state of Israel and all that has come in that train uh, at least have something to do with it. I mean, it's not something that just fell from the sky. But what are they? What are their beliefs? What are their practices? What is their politics? What, what is their essence? So it's a failure to appreciate this wondrous thing that we've inherited, which is a political order that respects the individual and creates institutions that protect the individual from uh, arbitrary imposition that it allows gay people to live openly and others to be, you know, their own selves. Uh, And uh, not seeing how that is at stake to some degree in what happens uh, in Israel-Palestine. That's another another line of argument. I get that. And, you know, another, I can imagine people saying they have yet to quite get that far, but the main thing is their liberty from an occupying power, and we'll deal with the rest of it later. There's shades of condescension there, but not necessarily. It really just could be that groups of people come along, if you're assuming an alongness, at different rates for different reasons, and that the reasons that you know Hamas society has not are understandable, as you might put it. I get, yes, I, I, I get that. I do get that. There's another thing I'm thinking here, which is sometimes virtue signaling, value signaling is the whole show. I feel like this might be one of those times, and I don't mean it in a trivial sense, value signaling or virtue signaling as a weakness, as as a kind of lack of character. I mean, people really want to know where you stand. 
and you can't, and you know, no opinion is really not an option. That's a kind of stance too. Uh, so there's pressure uh, to um, comport oneself and express oneself in ways that are unambiguous in conveying where one stands. Um, what do your Jewish students expect from you as a professor at an Ivy League university? I ask that as a rhetorical question, not just you, of me, of me as well. Uh, how do they feel uh, in the face of the of trend, trendy, postmodern, woke, uh, contempt for Zionism and tolerance of terrorist uh, atrocity? Um, and don't we owe them something? Or do we? And if so, how would we go about showing our solidarity and our support? Well, they are, shaken. They are shaken to their socks. And I think that our responsibility is, whatever our personal feelings, is to manufacture a commitment to explaining how both sides come to their conclusions and giving people the ability to decide for themselves. But I would say this. My sense of the way Jewish people present the case for Israel tends to assume that a certain thing is a conclusion, which I would prefer to be framed as an argument because I think it might be at least a minor point of light in these disputes. Many Jewish people talk about this as if it's an unassailable fact that Jews belong in what's called their homeland, that it was unassailably a correct thing for them to be reinstated in their homeland in 1948 in a place where other people were already living. And anybody who's really interested can't help thinking, well, wait a minute, who was there first, et cetera. And I'm not saying that the facts aren't there, but I don't hear it said enough that Jews had always been there. It's not as if there were only two of them, and then all of a sudden this whole society was splunked down. They had always been there. The issue was, after a certain point, more were there. But it's not that the Jews had left their homeland or abandoned it. They were already there. And then the idea was, we're going to put more Jewish people here. And then also, that that kind of partitioning was common in that region after World War One. The Jews and the Palestinians were not the only people where the lines were drawn that way. There were many places where people with competing senses of what their homeland were were in the same place and often fought. This was a thing, as we call it, as, as we call it now. And it didn't always work out well. But I don't hear that enough. I hear just, well, it's our homeland. Yeah, but the shorthand version is that, well, okay, but for some reason you left and all of you were in Poland or something. And then all of a sudden everybody was put back there and there were Arabs living there who didn't like being pushed away. Now, once more Jews were put in, which I think in itself, most people would say was fine. Where do you draw the line? How many is too many? Palestinians were pushed aside in ways that I think anybody who reads Benny Morris or the like would understand had some issues. There were some issues there as to how that happened, and people have a right to resent it. But that needs to be something that people know in at least a few quick strokes. And I know many people do, but more, more don't. And you can't just say, Jews, this is our homeland. Why do you think it's called Judea? No, no, no. More people need to understand that basic history. I know many people who think that Jews were helicoptered in all of a sudden. And, you know, the Arabs were angry and said, get out of our land. That, that's an oversimplified view of what happened. And Jews have a historical presence that is continuous going back millennia. And not just in the two region, or three. In yeah. the region, not just in Palestine. A lot of Jews in Israel are or descend from people who were expelled from Baghdad or Cairo or Damascus because they were settled for many generations uh, in these uh, Middle Eastern countries. That's a crucial point, too. You know, people talk about them being white, but you notice that every second well, Israeli, they don't look white. They are the descendants of people from the East who were removed themselves. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we have more of this to look forward to, John. It's the hardest thing. There's nothing to be glib about. I dread it ever coming up in any class of mine. Thank God it only has once or twice and not any time recently. It's hard. It's really hard. And if anybody has listened to me and thought that I have any glib views about any of this, I really beg you to re-listen because I, I don't. Um, Glenn, I don't think you do either, but it's... I don't, I don't have glib views and, and I, I don't have entirely subtle views. Uh, I, I want to say that we're out on a limb here and at least speaking for myself, thinking out loud without a clear vision about where it comes out at the end of the day. I'm trying to educate myself. I'm trying to come to terms with things. I'm trying to grapple and um, maybe showing a little bit of vulnerability by being willing to speak publicly on such sensitive matters. Uh, But, um, you know, we're here and and we're going to stay engaged in the most uh, important issues of our time, offering our perspective trying to do the best we can to uh, live in a dignified way and to witness something uh, that is is noble. Um, That's the goal in any case. Yeah, exactly. All right, John. Uh, I want to announce to the audience that in two weeks when John and I are back, we'll be with Tyler Austin Harper uh, and Daniel Besner. Uh, having a a four-week conversation about uh, cancel culture in the aftermath of the uh, Israel-Hamas war. And next week, uh, my guest uh, is going to be Reza Aslan, uh, the Iranian-American author of uh, a wonderful book, a fictional biography of Jesus called Zealot. Uh, and most recently of uh, a magnificent uh, biography of uh, Howard Baskerville, uh, who was a American missionary serving in Iran in the first decade of the 20th century and who got himself caught up in and martyred by um, a, a constitutional revolution that went on in Iran in those years. The, the book is called Zealot, An American it- Martyr. Well, Zealot is, uh, is Zealot the is book, a, right? it's what I call a potato chip book. You you cannot put it down. You can't stop <laughs> reading it. Fantastic. Yeah. And the new book is called An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. We'll be talking about that here at the Glenn Show next week. So, uh, okay, John, I think we've done enough damage for one Saturday morning. <laughs> Great way to kick off the day, Glenn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You take care. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. You too.